Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and thank you for joining us for the premier state policy podcast. Today, we'll be listening to a discussion led by Carla Jones, Senior Director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, concerning the recent events in Afghanistan, including the takeover by the Taliban, the evacuation of Hamid Karzai International Airport, the Biden and Trump administration's withdrawal plans, and so much more. Joining Carla to discuss these topics are Dr. Liam Fox, member of the British Parliament and former Shadow Defense Secretary, Elon Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council, Kelly Curie, Adjunct Senior Fellow and former U.S. Ambassador at Large for Women's Issues under the Trump Administration, Michael O'Hanlon, Director of Research of Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institute, and Representative Gene Ward of Hawaii. Let's go to their conversation on last Friday discussing Afghanistan. Well, I'd like to begin by saying our hearts go out to the families of those U.S. military personnel, as well as to the families of the Afghanis killed in yesterday's tragic bombing in Kabul. We are deeply saddened by these events, as well as by the disintegrating situation in Afghanistan over the past month. However, we are fortunate and frankly honored to have an outstanding group of experts to help give context to what's going on in Afghanistan and who can offer their thoughts on the ramifications of the withdrawal of U.S. and NATO forces from Afghanistan. So now let's get started. Michael, can you tell us a little about the deal that then-President Trump struck with the Taliban back in February 2020? What demands did we make with respect to restricting terrorist elements and possibly adhering to human rights norms in a Taliban-led Afghanistan? Greetings, uh, and thank you for having me. On the latter point, human rights norms, there wasn't much in the agreement about that at all, except by implication, because the (laughs) Taliban were obliged to try to negotiate a path forward for power sharing with the existing government. This was in, I believe, provision four of the agreement. And it was, in one sense, not considered to be the most immediate obligation. And of course, at some level, it was unenforceable because we were presuming that once there was this power-sharing government, we would leave. That was the logic behind the deal. So we wouldn't be there to enforce any commitments that had been made anyway. But we can say the Taliban never complied, even with the spirit and the letter of that requirement, because they never really sat down with the Ghani government and actually put forward any ideas for how to share power. They sat down for a couple of photo ops, not part of the February 29th Accord, but after that. As you'll recall, the February 29th Accord is indeed between the United States of America and the group that refers to itself as the Taliban. We always had this cumbersome phrase. We didn't want to give them any more street cred than necessary. So you read the document, you can Google it and find it. It's only a few pages long, but it basically says the the group that calls itself the Islamic government of Afghanistan. But we don't really call them that. We didn't call them that at the time. And we still haven't decided whether to call them that now. Anyway, that's the human rights and power sharing side, where the commitments were a little more ambiguous, but there was certainly no compliance. The more clear commitments were that the Taliban would not attack American or NATO troops in the time period that we remained in country, which was anticipated to be 15 months through May 2021, and also that that the Taliban would break ties with al-Qaeda. On the first point, the Taliban have apparently largely complied. Even yesterday, we are not alleging that they had a hand in. Uh, And 
prior to yesterday. There have been no Americans killed in Afghanistan since the February 29th accord had been signed. So the Taliban did comply with that part, you know, 99.9% at least. On the part about al-Qaeda, however, the UN itself documented that links remain between elements of al-Qaeda, most notably the Haqqani network based just over the border in Pakistan with the Taliban. And in fact, there are Haqqanis in the Taliban leadership who also pledge loyalty and membership to al-Qaeda. So on that point, there is non-compliance and the Taliban have never been consistent. I think at a practical level, we didn't think it likely they would break off all ties. We would have been content to make sure that the Taliban not support al-Qaeda in any operational planning against our interests around the world. And that will still be, I'm sure, the kind of commitment we try to hold the Taliban to going forward if we offer any kind of limited access to their financial resources, any future humanitarian aid, any kind of diplomatic recognition. At a minimum, they're going to have to not help al-Qaeda come after us violently. Uh, But they have not complied with the true spirit or letter of that set of provisions either. So for the most part, I argue that the Taliban only really complied with the part about not shooting at us. And on the other provisions, they have not. Dr. Fox, what were your thoughts when the deal with the Taliban was first being negotiated? We know that the then Afghan government wasn't involved in the negotiations. Did the president confer with our NATO allies during the talks? I think we have to go back to why we went to Afghanistan in the first place. It wasn't because the Taliban themselves were an intrinsic threat to our security. It's because the Taliban gave space to the groups who were. They gave a permissive environment, and we had to stop that. So why would you trust the same people uh, not to do the same thing all over again? That's the security side. From the democratic front, why would we sell out a democracy that we'd spent so long trying to build up to uh, a group that had shown themselves, if not innately hostile, then certainly willing to provide space to those who are. Why would we do that? Why would you sell out effectively the Afghan democracy we worked so hard to foster? Why would you do a deal with the enemies of the Afghan government without even consulting them? That, I think, is the backdrop to it. I think it was a dreadful act. Those who say it simply switched forever war to uh, forever shame, there may be something in that. Uh, The idea that President Biden so despised President Trump's foreign policy that the first thing that he did was to implement it when he came to office is also very difficult, I think, for allies to understand. And the way in which it was done, even if it was going to be done, is unfathomable. Any of us who worked uh, in the environment in Afghanistan and knew the way that the military operated, the one time you would not diminish your security presence is during the height of the fighting season. If you were going to do anything, you would do it at a different time, It seems to me that uh, every box that could be ticked was ticked in the wrong place for all of this. And then there is a a wringing of hands at what was an inevitable consequence because the Taliban, as I say, may not be our enemies, but they have allowed 5,000 of our most venomous, committed and brutal enemies to walk out of Bagram prison. Did we think that that would be without consequence? Did we think that that would not provide an imminent threat to our people in Afghanistan, to those who were our allies in Afghanistan, and ultimately later on, an export of terror elsewhere. I I find it almost impossible to just to understand the political thought processes 
that have taken us to this point. And, and you know, I'm I'm particularly hate to be critical of the United States, particularly in foreign policy. But this will go down as one of the great foreign policy disasters in recent times, I think, in American political history. And Dr. Fox, how do you think the events in Afghanistan will affect America's strategic alliances, especially our leadership in NATO? And will this be the tipping point, and I'm going to quote from your Conservative Home article, that drives Europe to build up, as you called it, alternative capabilities, and as well as for Europe to assume a greater share of responsibility for international security? When I was Defence Secretary, Bob Gates and I kind of did a double act at the NATO summits. Uh, It was a sort of bad cop and worse cop act. Uh, He would give them both barrels and then so would I uh, about the fact that NATO countries simply would not spend. They, on one hand, criticise their own dependence on American foreign policy and on the other refuse to spend on the capability that would give them any strategic freedom or even any greater influence in decision-making within NATO. So no, I do not think that this will be a spur for European countries. Many of them are already addicted to high-spending big states and are quite happy for American taxpayers to carry the burden of their security. They'll hypocritically criticise decision-making and say that they've not been consulted, but not increase that capacity themselves. So I'm sorry, but I don't think this will be the spur to greater European uh, defence spending. I think that's There is a a problem for NATO in how it makes decisions. I think there has been a problem for some time about understanding where threats come in a globalized era, including in areas like cyberspace, where it's the war of the invisible enemy that knows no geographical boundaries. I think there has been a misunderstanding of that. What worries me from a geopolitical point of view is that this will embolden not just America's enemies, but the enemies of the West and the enemies of our values you can bet your bottom dollar that they're rubbing their hands in Beijing and in Moscow and in Tehran. And I I was talking to one of the Saudi ministers today saying that all our enemies will be emboldened. We are all less safe than we were a couple of weeks ago because the perception will be that we are not willing to defend even the gains that we have made at enormous cost. And it just amazes me that people can't seem yet to grasp it if you create a vacuum, it's likely to be filled with a lot of things that you don't like. And Alon, another statement that struck me that the White House made was our only vital interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on the homeland. If that's the case, has our withdrawal from Afghanistan helped or hurt us in that regard? So I think really that's the $64,000 question. I unequivocally come down on the hurt side of the fence for a couple of primary reasons. First of all, there's the nuts and bolts of our operational presence. In order to understand human terrain, you actually have to have humans. And so there are no shortage of intelligence professionals who have made a point of saying publicly, because there are institutional equities that they're trying to protect, that the way in which we've withdrawn has, is going to make it much harder for us to monitor the ebb and flow of Islamic extremists, separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, in terms of who is active, who is doing uh, what, where in Afghanistan. I would only add to that that there's a second layer, I think, also, 
which is that the optics on this are extremely important. It's useful to remember that in the decade between 1979 and 1989, experts estimate that something like 40,000 foreign fighters, foreign origin fighters, came to Afghanistan to join the jihad against the Soviets. You saw a massive mobilization on that scale in just a couple of years, not too long ago, in the context of Syria and Iraq, joining forces with the Islamic State and joining the Islamic State's self-declared caliphate. So my big concern in this context is the degree of inspiration that foreign radicals will draw from the appearance that the Taliban have managed to play a weak hand comparatively, but play a weak hand very well and have more staying power, more resilience, and frankly, more fortitude than the United States. It recalls the, the old infamous quote by Osama bin Laden that you know when there's a strong horse and a weak horse, the public's very naturally gravitate to the strong horse. It's very difficult for me to imagine any way in which, you know, PR communications aside, any way the United States can spin our current pace of Afghan withdrawal as anything but a weak horse. And, and that's frankly liable to lend inspiration to not only to the Taliban's cause, but also to Islamic radicals globally who see this as a victory for their cause more broadly. And Michael, another troubling statement that the White House has made was that American troops should not be fighting in a war and dying in war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. They put the number of Afghan troops at 300,000, a figure that has since been discredited. Would you mind filling in some of the details about what led to the Afghan army's rapid collapse? And tell our listeners about the casualties that the Afghan army has suffered, as well as the Afghan national police. Sometimes we forget that Afghanis have been fighting very hard for their country. Yes, Afghans certainly have. And I know Minister Fox and others who worked on this policy over the years tried to improve the training and the technical skills. But just a couple of statistics to answer your specific questions. About 5,000 to 10,000 Afghan soldiers and police were dying each year for the last decade. Sometimes that's because they were ambushed at checkpoints. So the bravery was simply being willing to go out to the checkpoint, but they were attacked before they even knew it. Sometimes, however, they also would go on uh, firefight movements of one type or another or engage in protracted enemy gunfire, exchange of gunfire with the enemy and really fight hard. And uh, generally speaking, if they did that with our forces and with good commanders, two big ifs, they did pretty well. As the years went by, the Afghans developed a very good special forces sector, about 15,000 troops. They were being asked to do too much, and they were often taking high casualties because they would go in and seize cities that the Taliban had temporarily taken part of or otherwise do the offensive fighting that produces you know, higher rates of injury and death. And they were tired as well, but they were very good. That is the group that I thought would fight hard until the end. And so I'll come back in a second to why I think they did not. But that group in particular, then on top of that, we know that there were a number of, of Afghan police and army commanders who were corrupt, who were friends or cousins of the right person in the Afghan government who got their jobs for the wrong reasons. But there were also good commanders who planned operations and went out in the field with their troops 
I remember in my visits to Afghanistan over the years between roughly 2008 and 2018, there were certain units that were doing quite well. Uh, for example, the 201st and 203rd Corps in the eastern parts of the country during the mid-2010s had some very good commanders. They were doing a lot of offensive operations, sweeps to drive Taliban out. And then once we got more serious about rebuilding capability in Helmand province, uh, that commander was pretty good for a while as well, but it was uneven. So if you had bad leadership, uncommitted leadership, non-professional leadership, the troops, of course, were not as inclined to fight hard themselves, and they were often in it partly for a paycheck. They would fight, but if they had a chance to win more than just for the sake of commitment to the nation in some abstract way. So now to conclude, I'll finally answer your question about why they collapsed, or at least in my best assessment, it's always easy to predict the past. <laughs> I'm not sure I could have predicted this a month ago, but I think Afghans also have a street smarts about them where they don't like to die for a losing cause. Most of them are not suicide bombers. Most of them are not people who just like to, you know, in some old fashioned medieval way, fight in hideously violent manner just because it's somehow in their blood. They're, they're, I give them credit for being a little smarter. And when the rug is pulled out from underneath them because the United States and NATO depart precipitously with no real effort to build up a strategy that has a chance of holding, and then they are asked to fight in what's apparently going to be a losing effort, just a question of time. Even the CIA is saying just a question of how many months. It turned out to be weeks and days, not months. But basically, by the time we had made this decision, by the time President Biden made this decision, it was more or less being seen as a foregone conclusion the Taliban would win, at least in most of the country. So to quote John Kerry, and I'll finish on this, but what you know, John Kerry said 50 years ago about Vietnam, how do you ask a man to be the last person to die for a mistake or for a losing cause? Afghans didn't want to fight if the outcome was already set in stone, already knowable, or at least if that was the perception. And while they weren't fighting on the battlefield, among the people fighting hardest for a future Afghanistan were Afghanistan's women. Ambassador Curry, I found it fascinating that before the first Taliban takeover in 1996, something like 40% of doctors in Kabul, as well as around half of Afghanistan's civil servants were women. Describe what life was like for women under the Taliban the first time around. I think that there's pretty widely understood knowledge that the Taliban in the 1990s did not respect in any meaningful way the rights of women. They hold a very regressive view of Islam and Sharia law that requires women to always be covered. They are not allowed to go out in public without a male guardian. They were not allowed to go to school. They were not allowed to work outside the home. They were treated as property. And girls as young as 12 were allowed to be married and be the second, third wife of men. It, it was a very regressive view of women's rights. And not even, even by the standards of some of the more conservative societies in the Middle East, um, the Saudis and, and others, it was considered just quite breathtakingly backwards, not even because of the, the underlying normative aspects, but the way that it manifested in terms of denying women and girls opportunities for education and economic participation and how that negatively affected the prosperity of the country's stable place because 
of these restrictions. And you recorded a Women's Caucus Roundtable at the ALA Conference in Salt Lake City with Michelle Beckering of USGLC and also outgoing ambassador to the U.S. from Afghanistan, Roya Rahmani. And one of the most difficult parts of that recording to listen to is when Ambassador Rahmani thanked the United States for all we did to give women opportunity and freedom in her country. Could you describe really briefly what our troops were able to accomplish for women in Afghanistan? Well, actually, it was that the troops created space for the Afghan women to accomplish things. And the Afghan women who were given that opportunity, the women and girls who were given the opportunity to learn, to go to school, and to fully participate in public life, really made the most of all those opportunities. And they pushed and fought very hard because even outside of the Taliban, Pashtun society is very traditional and very conservative. The Taliban didn't, I, I always say this, you know, as medieval as they were, the Taliban didn't come from outer space. They were, in a sense, just a very extreme version of, of a very traditional Pashtun culture that had very, very traditional and very uh, regressive views. And so they still, even without the Taliban, women in Afghanistan still had to fight for everything that they, that they had. And so what has happened the last two weeks, and one of the reasons that I'm also not able to join you by video is that I've spent the last two weeks, two and a half weeks really now, because this effort started actually before the fall of Kabul, because women from the provincial areas of Afghanistan who were seeing this, who had, you know, where the Taliban was coming in and taking over, they were coming into Kabul, fleeing in advance of the Taliban. And so you, you saw these educated women, these professional women, women who had served as judges, as police, as soldiers, as lawyers, as doctors, all of these women suddenly realizing that space that they had fought so hard to take over was evaporating. And so we began, as soon as these provincial um, capitals started falling a few weeks ago, those of us that work with Afghan women and girls were seeing this exodus and, and seeing that this was a problem. And then pretty early, even before the fall of Kabul, I was getting inundated with women saying, please help us get visas so we can leave and go. We need to be out of here before the Taliban arrive. We need to go. And those pleas fell on completely deaf ears at the State Department. And it was stunning to watch not just the way that we abandoned the Afghan people as a whole, but the way an administration that claimed to care so much about women's rights just turn its back on Afghan women and girls in the most fundamental and, and horrifying way. And I literally just, right before I, the reason I was a little late getting on this phone call is because I've been having to call women since about one o'clock. I've been having to call women that we were supposed to be evacuating today and tell them that the bus is not coming to pick you up. You need to go into hiding. You need to flee Kabul now. We cannot do anything more to help you now. We'll get back to you in a couple of days and see what, what's next. It is so heartbreaking. It's just been, just, I don't have words for it. And to see how incompetently 
and malevolently our government behaved towards these women and how little they did to help them. They didn't even make the minimal effort. In fact, at times, I, you know, we had these morbid jokes going on the past two weeks where there were times where I felt like the, the enemy was not the Taliban. It was the State Department. It was the processes that they had set up for us to try to evacuate these women were so ludicrous and Kafkaesque. There is going to need to be an accounting of what happened the past two weeks. It, I think that there needs to be 9-11 style, a 9-11 style commission that really looks at what went wrong here the past two weeks. It is just something is wrong and broken in our foreign policy and national security infrastructure. Thank you very much for all that you're doing. And thank you very much for joining us today. And Dr. Fox. Well, I, I very much agree with what Mike and Alana have been saying. Um, I think, how, how do we come out of this? Well, I think a lot will depend on how honest the analysis is about where the policy originated and how it was carried out. I mean, I'm a politician. The temptation is always to say, well, I was right all along, but this is too big a call. It is about the credibility of the United States. It's about the willingness of allies to go along with the United States should we face another common security crisis. And I think it's also about understanding that you cannot disengage in an era of globalization where our interconnectivity and our interdependence is greater than ever before. The concept of over there has limited value economically and in security than, than I had before. But I think even more important than any of those things is to see the bigger picture. We live in an era where we are geopolitically being challenged by countries like China in particular, but also by Russia, by Iran. They want to see a world that is more permissive for totalitarianism. We need to create a world that is more permissive for democracy and rule of law and liberty. Our values are being challenged globally in a way that they have not been in living memory. And we need to understand that we are in intellectually, politically, the, the battle of our lives. You've been listening to our panel discussion from last week's Policy Hour, led by Carla Jones, Senior Director of Federalism and the International Relations Task Force, on the issue of Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover. Thank you again for joining us here in Across the States. Be sure to tune in again next time for more of the Premier State Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.